When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Podcast um, from Ibotta, where product professionals share stories, advice, and thoughts on all things product over a cup of coffee. Grab a cup of Joe and join us to level up your product career 30 minutes at a time. So, I'm one of your co hosts, Kevin Gentry, I'm product manager at Ibotta for about two years. Um, I've gotten into product, uh, interesting path. I, I used to be a professional musician and um, stumbled across the uh, startup land, um, doing a little bit of sales, a little bit of operations, just a jack of all trades, um, and then kind of getting myself into product over time, understanding that that um, profession was very similar to the things that I was doing related to music, so very much um, very creative and getting to do a lot of different things, working with technical folks, so that was kind of fun for me. So um, it's a little bit about my background and how I got into product. Um, I've been in product for about six years, and um, yeah, that's me. So I'll hand it over to Bergen. Good morning, I'm Bergen Devell. I'm also a product manager at Ibotta. I have been in the product management field for about six years as well. I started my career at ADT, home security company, and I was part of our corporate finance team at the time. And I think like most product managers, I sort of weaved my way into the product management role. At the time, we had a chief innovation officer at our organization, and he brought together a cross-functional group of employees. And I was part of the finance team and had a lot of ideas on how we could improve the product side of ADT's monthly recurring model for security services and worked on the side of my desk on a project for six months to a year without being part of the product organization to kind of prove my skills and what I could bring to the team. And after you know that, that side project was presented to our leadership team, I was able to secure a full-time role in the product management space. And since then, or at the time, I worked on our home automation app called ADT Pulse. I then moved on to working at MapQuest which still exists for those of you that probably don't know that anymore, and uh, worked on our website product, which still had 30 million monthly active users, which is a shocking statistic. And we were acquired by Verizon, which kind of slowed down a lot of the stuff on the product management side, and I have since transitioned to working at Ibotta, and I have been there since March. And within Ibotta, I support our search and surfacing team, so... We are working on our search experience within the mobile app and thinking more broadly next year about content distribution. So what does that look like from a platform standpoint? My name is Allegra Bishop. I'm currently a product manager over the doctor and provider experience at a company called Cirrus MD. 
um, which gives uh, asynchronous instant access to a doctor in your back pocket is kind of the way that we like to, to sell ourselves these days. Um, I got into product kind of, everyone says in a weird way, but we all get it in, into it in a weird way, so I don't know if it's actually a weird way. Um, my background is in human bio and biomedical science. Um, med school was kind of always the path. You know, I was really set on surgery. Um, kind of realized that what I liked about it was uh, the collaboration aspect of it. I loved the data piece of it um, and being able to understand and solve really complex problems for people. Um, so for a while I was actually thinking of going into uh, software engineering, um, kind of realized that I really liked the people element and the, the multifaceted uh, uh, part of, of product. So I've worked in the manufacturing side of product management, uh, in the cycling industry, uh, in government tech, uh, now in healthcare. Um, and I'm also part of Colorado Product, which is a uh, big networking group here in Colorado, really trying to establish um, Colorado as the, the hub for product management. Um, so we do panels, uh, we get involved in unique events like this. Uh, we do mentorship programs, uh, happy hours, anything that you can think of, um, and it's a, it's a great thing to be a part of as well. I got this one. Yeah, cool. Um, hi, everybody. My name's Jake Whirling. Um, I am also a product manager at Ibotta. Um, Ibotta, for those of you who don't know, I don't know if we've really talked about what the app is just yet, but it's a mobile cash back app uh, where you can earn cash back on everyday purchases. It got its start by letting users upload their receipts. Um, and earning cash back on things you buy at King Super, Safeway, or what have you. Um, we've since expanded into the online space where you can go to DicksportingGoods.com, earn some cash back there, or even into the payment space as well, which is where we're trying to go next, where you can pay with Ibotta at places like Chipotle or Home Depot and earn a couple percentage points back there. Um, my role at Ibotta is I, I work on problems um, that users face after they go shopping, so receipt upload, linking loyalty accounts at grocery stores, things of that nature, and making that cashback experience as smooth and seamless as possible. Um, my path into product management is also pretty windy. Um, I had no idea I wanted to be a product manager. I got a degree in international relations, um, so here I am really using that degree really well. Um, I, right out of school, I became a public school teacher. I joined Teach for America. Um, in Colorado Springs, was a teacher for two years, um, taught math, taught social studies, taught STEM. Um, and then I decided, you know what, I needed to do something a little bit different. Um, I still liked solving problems. I wanted to figure out a way to solve them at scale. And I thought, you know what, like tech, the tech industry is really doing that um, for better or worse today, probably more effectively than any other industry out there. Uh, so I joined a startup in Seattle called Pipeline Deals. It was, I originally was a customer success manager uh, helped get a customer success program off the ground and thought through why are customers canceling their subscriptions at this SaaS business that I joined. Um, so thought through a lot of the signals around why, uh, why customers are leaving, what are they doing, how can we get ahead of that, how can we understand customer pain points. Um, and then I fed all of that information back to our product team. Um, and then from there, it just became a, a kind of a lucky thing where the space opened up on the product team. I joined there, and that was four and a half years ago. So I've been doing product ever since. Awesome. I'm Jess Sherlock. Oh, boy. Switch mics. Hello. Oh, that's better. Um, hey, I'm Jess Sherlock. <clears throat> I'm actually the lead product management instructor here for Denver. Um, I teach all of our product management boot camps. What is going on? 
as well as uh, some of the longer term courses. I also just started teaching remote. So I'm about halfway through a remote course for product management now. So there's a boot camp, ne boot camp coming up next Saturday. Happy to chat with anybody if you have questions or if you're interested. Um, I'm also starting a 10 week course in January um, where we go into more detail on product management, everything from upfront research out through agile execution, road mapping, metrics, things like that. Um, so yeah, I most recently was director of product at GoSpotCheck. I joined as the first product manager um, when we were about 25 people, was with the team until we were about 170. Um, I was managing all of our product managers and designers on our core product. So we were basically delivering um, an enterprise tool for companies to track data about their products in the field. Um, I'm currently, uh, in addition to teaching, I'm doing some consulting for businesses, so helping companies uh, build uh, their product teams, doing hiring, as well as um, process development and helping specifically to help product managers and product designers work more effectively together. Um, happy to chat about that. I'm also doing individual coaching for anybody who's interested in getting into product. So that's a little about me. Thanks, Jess. Um, so if, if you can't tell already, we're, we're a bunch of product nerds. Um, we love product management. And that's why we created a podcast to talk about it and get excited about it. So um, with that, we'll kick off our topic, the success of success metrics. Um, and our first discussion um, is how does your organization measure success and how do you measure success at the product level? So let's start with the organization first. Um, and <clears throat> I don't know, maybe Jake, you can kick us off. Sure. Go in the middle here. Acronym. Are you reusing this mic? We'll see if that works. Hello. Okay. So at the team level, I, our goal is to tie our team or squad level goals to the company level goals and how we can drive the outputs or outcomes, excuse me, at our squad level to tie in and ladder into the larger organization. So it depends on your squad and your area of focus, but for my team in particular on search, we're looking at things like improving dead end rate because dead end rate of search or searches obviously is a negative impact to the app, which downstream effects impacts our monthly active users, or in our case, funded redemptions is a big measurement tactic for us at Ibotta. So at the squad level, we're trying to always tie our objectives and key results back to the organizations and how we ladder into that larger, larger efforts. I think another thing at the squad level we try to do is look at small we look at these quarterly. So we try to look at the work in three months at a time and things that we can do in that period. So we do, even at the organizational level, quarterly OKRs, but we have them for the year as well. So we'll look at, in a year we need to get to this number, but then we break that out by quarter at the squad level. So um, I think quarterly is the right amount of time. Six months, in my opinion, might be a little bit easier when you're 
at least on our squad, building a brand new platform, it's really hard to show that iterative process or progress within a quarter. So six months might be slightly easier, but it's kind of up to the organization. And the way we measure that at the leadership level is each quarter we go in and we review our OKRs with our leadership team, collect feedback, go back to the squad, probably tweak them a little bit. We have a mid-quarter check-in to make sure everybody's on track, and then we review that again at the end of the quarter. So we do put a lot of rigor around OKRs at our organization. Um, I haven't been in any other organizations in the past that have really looked at the squad's progress as close as we do. So it does help keep everybody on track, keeps the leadership team informed on what the team's doing, and then there's really no surprises at the end of the quarter. So I think the mid-quarter check-in is a really good like level setting and making sure everybody's tracking to that progress. Yeah, it's, a, it's another way that you can kind of put parameters around creativity and progress and the work that you're doing. Um, I found the same pattern being a musician and working within a band and writing songs, for instance. If you didn't have a genre that you were writing songs to, kind of freeform jazz was another kind of blanket genre that you could write to. But it was very hard to kind of, you know, put structure around what kind of music you wanted to write and um, what songs and what structure of those songs and who were we catering this to. And those, that OKR framework, it helps us kind of put everything in perspective and helps us focus on what really matters for the organization, but also for um, the work that we're doing and the problem areas that we're focused on. So it's just kind of putting parameterized, uh, uh, parameters around your creative thinking or your roadmaps and the the things, the products that you're building, and it really helps you focus and be more productive. I, I've found that a lot with the OKRs. Um, but that, that's how Ibotta kind of measures that. Allegra, do you have? Um, sure. Um, so SiriusMD does something really similar. Um, OKRs are somewhat new for our organization just because we are still technically a startup. Um, one thing that I found to be really powerful is there are so many companies out there and every company I've ever worked for that focuses around OKRs, revenue is usually one of the company OKRs. Um, that's great, it's wonderful, but it's really hard to inspire some, like sales will be very inspired by a revenue-based OKR, right? That makes a lot of sense, but it's really hard to get other functional groups to be inspired in the same way. So something that I think that uh, we've done really well is not just say we want to hit X yeah. number ARR you know, within this amount of time, um, but really breaking it down of why we want to hit that, specific things that we can impact. Um, you know, as a product person, there's certainly some things that we can absolutely impact, um, and then there's others that we can't. So it, it makes it easier to, to focus on, on those specific pieces and understand kind of where you fit in, the, in that uh, puzzle. And part of the way that we do that is all of our individual functional OKRs do kind of uh, bubble up to the company OKRs, but it also goes in both directions. Um, so one of the things that I love working at a small company is you get a lot of influence into the conversations that happen at a leadership level to help to uh, establish those OKRs, which is great. Um, something else that I love to do is I do my own personal secret OKRs, and they're secret for now because I have not been doing great at them, which is okay. It probably just means that I'm shooting way too high, um, but I really appreciate that too because it it allows you to be creative and be really curious about things without having to report them to an executive team or a, you know, a board of directors or something like that. Um, and so I found a lot of, it makes my job more fun. That's, a, that's a great that call out though. I, I think we all kind of have our own personal OKRs in some way, shape or form. But um, the, the one thing that we do at Ibotta too is there's a committed OKR and an aspirational OKR. So something that you're committing to that is achievable, that you're planning on focusing on, and then something that's like, 
yeah, if we push ourselves really hard, we might get 70% of this, right? Um, and I think we even grade our own OKRs at like the 70% level. So if we hit 70% of our committed, we technically hit it. Um, it's just, it's, it's more of like, uh, it's kind of like a coaching methodology, right? Like if you say, hey, hit this bar, um, they're going to probably hit somewhere around here. So you want to put it as, as high as you can so that they uh, strive to hit as, as high as, you know, we can push ourselves to, to uh, achieve those. Um, but you also brought up KPIs, so key performance indicators of like revenue. That's a, it's a good um, example of one KPI. Um, another KPI could be like user retention or um, a CSAT score that's more like qualitative, right? Um, <clears throat> I don't want to confuse those with what OKRs are. So objectives are still more meant to be more vision or kind of like more thematic, right? Like, we're going to make every purchase rewarding, right? Like, that's kind of one of our vision statements, and that's more of a objective. And then how we do that is you measure KPIs or key results as the KRs to achieve that. So theoretically, if you knock out all your KRs or you achieve the KPIs that you're striving for, you've effectively solved your objective. But that objective is meant to be vague and thematic so that you, you and squad can be autonomous to hit that however way you see fit so that you don't come along the way, uh, lines where you're setting the OKR for the whole year and then your roadmap changes, right? Because um, I think we, you know, the, the, the um, bane of the roadmap for 12 years is things change pretty frequently. So having more thematics throughout the year makes sense because it helps you focus, but then, you know, it gives you that autonomy at the squad level to how do you guys measure to achieve that OKR? That's another way to think about it, but Jess, do you have a way? Yeah. Um, both at GoSpotCheck and at uh, both of my clients, um, they're all using the OKR methodology as well. Um, one of the challenges that came up at GoSpotCheck, and I'm seeing again, uh, there's lots of consistent themes, um, I'm noticing that at least on the product team, there's been a lot of discussion and confusion around how you separate out roadmap from KR. So there's been situations in which KRs have been, you know, deliver X thing that we've outlined for Q1, for example. In binary, is that kind of like yeah, yeah, so, you know, yeah. maybe our objective is to um, increase market share in a certain industry, and, you know, as a leadership team, they've identified that X feature gap is the way to do that. Um, therefore, that, you know, the KR is deliver V1 of X feature. Um, and I think where that becomes really challenging is what you were talking about, which is your ideal state, right, is that the team that's closest to the work and is able to move the quickest um, is in a position to understand what are we trying to do? Okay, we're trying to grow market share, for example, in, um, you know, quick serve restaurants. If that's what you're trying to accomplish, there's a number of ways to go about doing that. And the team of designers and developers and product managers are best armed to look at the data um, and make decisions and iterate quickly throughout a quarter. Um, and so I think as leadership, a lot of the coaching I'm, I'm doing and things I'm talking to them about is, you know, it is, it may feel uh, like you have less control, but you're actually going to enable better outcomes if you help people understand what you're trying to accomplish without um, being prescriptive in yeah. your KRs. So a lot of the coaching I've been doing is around, you know, identifying how something that seems helpful to the teams, like I don't think it's malicious, yeah. but I think they're inadvertently constraining what their team, yeah. you know, could do to solve that problem. I think another way that we, we've also thought about it was focus on the what and the why and not the how. Right? So if something becomes a how, then it's not going to be effective, right? Yeah. Exactly. yeah. I have some mic problems. Exactly. 
I think it's just me. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> uh, I th yes, you're exactly right. And I think people have, a, uh, at least the folks I've been working with, it's not easy to yeah. see when it's a how. Because, you know, especially in a small organization, leadership often is playing a key role in product. And so they do have a lot of data. And they might be right. Yeah. Their how might be right. Yeah. But you just don't want to get in a position where um, if things change over the course mm -hmm. of the quarter, you've hamstrung your team towards a particular solution. Yeah. One of the things that makes OKRs a little bit tricky. Alright. Uh, one of the things that makes OKRs a little bit tricky for businesses to adopt is it implies a lot of autonomy being given to the team. And for leadership, that's often a really hard thing to give up. Especially if the team is if the leadership team is the founding team, where the CEO is product manager number one, um, and the CTO is engineer number one, they are very used to making these kinds of decisions. So letting that go over time is often very hard for leadership teams to do. Um, but really the successful implementation of OKRs is all about setting kind of the vision of where we want to go. And oftentimes you set this vision, you don't know how you're going to get there yet. Um, but really the key result is there to help keep people on the right track so they can try different things, they can test new features. They can try out new ideas in the marketplace and see what actually moves the needle, as it were, against those key results. Um, and then you have the kind of those higher level conversation then becomes, okay, what is the objective and how are we going to know if we're getting there? And that's where you need your leadership buy-in and then let the team do the work when they're looking at the data, they're closest to the market, they know the users the best. Yeah, I think another tactic that I know that you've used, um, Jake, and maybe you can speak more to this, but when someone is very focused on the how, um, continuing to ask why, right? Like continuing that why, the five whys or whatever, just, hey, why, why, why is this a good solution? And then eventually you can get to a how, or a, a, sorry, a what and a why, um, just by asking those questions. Yeah, this is it's a great call out. I, I don't know if my engineers really like it when I do this, <laughs> um, or the engineers that I work with. Um, I joined a team, a back-end engineering team at Ibotta that hadn't had a product manager, I think, ever. Yeah. Um, and I was coming in to try and help provide that product input um, to this team. And they had been building their own roadmap for a long time. And they knew what they needed to build, but it was always from an engineering perspective. And I wasn't just going to come in and say, no, we're not doing that, because that's not going to go over well. Uh, so I just kept asking why. They'd say, like, oh, we need to do this. This should be our objective next year. This should be our key result. And it was very much like we should build this thing. Yeah, it's binary, uh, right? Yeah. yeah, it's like either we build this thing or we don't, kind of yeah. to what you were yeah. talking about. And then I would just ask why. And yeah. they'd be like, what do you mean why? I was like, why? Why build that thing? Yeah. And then that started to have, yeah. that helped us get from the thing they wanted to build to the objective. Like what new reality were they trying to create as, of the res as a result of the work they were proposing? Yeah, I think that's a great technique to get to the why, but really humans in general are more solution oriented. So it's very hard for them to start thinking that way. So I, what are some other techniques, um, maybe others on the panel that you've used to get them in that mindset of objective or why? I try and involve everyone in user interviews. Um, you know, I've had a lot of success with that in the past where, you know, engineers can sometimes be pretty hesitant um, to be on uh, customer calls or user interviews. Uh, where I'm at now, it's a unique kind of, I guess the more I talk to people, it's kind of less and less unique, but it's uh, the people who pay for it are not the people who use it. Um, so trying to really get 
um, everybody in the company, not just our engineers, to, to understand the perspective of the people who pay for it, why are they paying for it, the people who use it, why do they like to use it, um, why do they continue to use it, why do they continue to, to say the positive things about it that they do, or the negative things that, you know, we need to change. Um, and I think that you can, uh, once you get somebody in the mindset of, oh yeah, you know, this solution makes sense because I think it makes sense. Um, one thing that can be really challenging about healthcare and the healthcare space is a lot of healthcare is not logical, right? A lot of regulations were, you know, set forth in the 80s and have not changed. And uh, this is something that we, we uh, come up against quite regularly, but it makes it a little bit challenging when, you know, an engineer's assumption is always going to be the logical one. Um, and that isn't always the case. Um, same thing with, you know, trusting your provider. Um, it's not necessarily a logical thing. So uh, it helps to kind of reframe people yeah. um, uh, in, in any uh, functional group, not just engineering, by having them actually talk to the people. Yeah. Building empathy with the users, right? I think that's so key. Um, yeah, I, I find any customer interviews, again, you, you find so many good revelations there, but especially bringing the team that's working on it into that room and that conversation early and not like late to the game too is, is probably pretty important with that as well. Uh, something I was going to add is um, when you are talking through an OKR, I, I like to kind of have people think about three months from now. If you had a dashboard that had some set of data and charts and graphs on it, what would those charts and graphs be? Because effectively, that's what the KR is. Um, and people uh, oftentimes are thinking about the solution. So they're thinking, okay, we're trying to expand in this industry, so we're going to need this feature and that feature and this feature. But really what you're saying is we see what? Maybe a reduced sales cycle time for leads in that industry or we see you know, an increased win rate for sales leads in that industry or we've generated X revenue from that industry, right? So that's the harder conversation to have and actually that produces a better conversation because I think if you're talking about improving win rate, for example, your solution set is going to be, you know, you might identify features that are easier to demo, they're gonna you know, maybe cause for faster implementations and those surface the metrics that really they're trying to impact and they just are thinking about the solution that they think is going to best impact it. So I think it's like kind of asking them to back up a little bit and unpack, you know, imagine three months in the future, what dashboard would you have that's green and what are those graphs representing? Um, and, you know, that I think then that becomes what we hopefully create. In some cases we would depending on the quarter and yeah. what those uh, data points were. But that can, I think, also pull them out of the solutioning a little bit. Mm -hmm. That's a great, yeah. Can I add something real quick to that? I think tying this back to the idea of the success of success metrics, like you can put up any number of metrics on a dashboard and it can be pretty and it can have all sorts of colors and lines and charts, but there needs to be some understanding of why you think those metrics are important. Like what, what are you trying to accomplish? Like what story are you trying to tell by putting those particular numbers on a dashboard three months from now. Like, why are you thinking about those? And if you can articulate that vision, then you can start to align your team around those success metrics, and they'll all start rowing in the same direction a little bit more. Yeah, I think where we're trying to go at Ibotta is having the leadership teams create that strategic vision. Where do they want to see the organization in 2022, for example? And really giving the teams the permission to figure out how we get there. And I think oftentimes that's a very intimidating, uh, here's where we need to be. Uh, what I've been trying to challenge the team with is how we can show that incremental progress to getting there, especially if we want to move into the payment space, which is a huge diversion from where we are today, or build this platform to allow any and all partners to interact with our content. 
that is a very hard thing for the team to be like, okay, but we need to do 8,000 things to get there, but our leadership team is going to want that in, you know, those quarterly and by, you know, mid-quarter check-ins. So our team is really trying to focus on laying the foundation now that we can show that incremental progress and start iterating with partners and do those small level MVPs um, while we're still trying to build out this very large thing in the future. And I think that the more you can work with your team to break that work down and show that incremental progress is it helps you get the team kind of buy-in from the leadership team as well as some room to, to explore what that looks like. So I think it's oftentimes hard to think about this really big thing in the future, but trying to break that down and show kind of quarterly progress is what we're trying to do at the squad level. I think also bringing it back to success metrics, um, every time that a feature comes through, I think that I've definitely, I'm sure everyone in this room has fallen victim to the, you build something and you're like, oh crap, I gotta add data to this. Like you come back or I've been in organizations where unless you have specific success metrics attached to it, you're not gonna get the engineering resources to, uh, to make that thing happen. Um, one of my favorite quotes is from uh, David Ogilvy, who's a, a very famous ad, uh, ad genius. Um, and he says, uh, most people use data like a drunk uses a lamppost for support instead of illumination. And it's one of my favorite quotes because it's like, there's so many Love times that. at which you can kind of be going along and going along and you just have this idea, right? You have the solution. You're like, this would look great in the product and I know that this is what I need and this is exactly what it'll look like and all of this, um, which, you know, engineers and designers just absolutely love if you hand them that. Um, but what, what I've really found is if an organization is asking you to assign data to something in order to prove it, um, they're looking at it the wrong way. That's backwards, right? It should be, we are trying to move the needle on this specific metric this far and the reason that the metric is important is because it does bubble up to the those quarterly, yearly um, uh, OKRs, especially uh, objectives, right? When we're thinking about the visionary um, piece, how can we, as a smaller product organization, in this one feature, um, uh, kind of move move the needle slowly? And you know, it's never going to happen all at once. Like you said, there, it'll eight thousand pieces make a whole, um, and you have to make sure that all the pieces are moving in the right direction, and you're never going to get there. Yeah. Let's. So let's let's talk a little bit about those key metrics or the key results. Um, KPIs is another TLA, but three-letter acronym. Uh, key performance indicators. So it's just ways that you can measure success. Um, I, I think each product, there are kind of common themes of what things to measure. Like revenue is a pretty common thing to measure. Um, are there any other different types of like themes in terms of key results that you guys kind of default to when you're building products um, um, that kind of like speak to the success or the growth of uh, your product line? Yeah, I'd start with consumption of whatever you're building. Um, there's every product has a core value flow that everything else is built around. So I bought a, as an example, uh, my perception of that, and my fellow Ibotta PMs may disagree with this, but I think the core value flow within Ibotta is redeeming an offer, redeeming an offer for a box of Cheerios. How many times can you do that? How often can you do that per month, right? We have all sorts of metrics around how much our users consume that core value flow. A lot of other things have been built around that, but that's one of the core things that has helped make Ibotta successful. Um, so in terms of what do I measure, what are some other things I default to, it's all about this kind of adoption of that core flow and can user actions tell us how they perceive the value of our product? Not what they're telling us, I mean NPS and things like that are interesting, 
but I'm much more interested in letting users vote with their feet. So if they've linked a loyalty account like their target account with Ibotta, how often are they disconnecting their account? Um, how often are they going through the flow? How often are they dropping out of the flow? Like starting to think through like what are the user actions that they're taking? Um, what are, what, what's the story that those, those actions are telling? Yeah, I, um, I think there's an interesting nuance in B2B, and I know that's, an, that's a part, I think, of some of the Ibotta products, but um, in B2B you have this interesting layer, so B2B, TL, what are we calling those, TLAs? Yeah. Three-letter acronym? <laughs> B2B, business to business, uh, as opposed to business to consumer. So a, an app like Facebook or Instagram, right, those are consumer apps. Um, uh, Go Spot Check and, and many other apps I've worked on in my career are <laughs> B2B, meaning, um, you know, Go Spot Check is selling a product to a company like Danone, to have their team of um, employees use. And so there's a different dynamic at play when we're looking at success metrics, which you know we have to be really conscientious of our two types of users. We have our buyer who's making the purchase decision um, and who's making the decision to continue their contracts. You know, they're typically signing for a year, two years, three years. Um, and then the user who's actually interacting with all the features that we're building. And so for um, B2B businesses, you often have this secondary layer of metrics that you're keeping tabs on, which have to do with, you know, your win rate and certainly churn. So um, that could be churn at an, a contract level of are these customers sticking around contract to contract, uh, but also churn within certain feature sets. So depending on how you go to market with uh, the product and, and what you add on to it, what are they keeping, you know, turned on, what are they turning off over the course of their contract. So um, I think I would call those more of like the evergreen business metrics that you're looking at. And, and from a B2B standpoint, um, engagement and usage is important. But I actually just had this conversation with a student the other day where he was asking about how, how in B2B, you know, you track usage on a feature. And I, I gave him an anecdotal story of, you know, a customer that we had who had over 10,000 employees using this app. And their business decision was to roll out the application region by region. So we might release the feature broadly to all customers in a setting screen where they could choose to turn it on. But then even once they turn it on, you know, it's kind of out of our hands as far as how they choose to implement it within their business and train folks across the country to use that new feature set. And so um, I think, you know, the point being be considerate of what that rollout really looks like. You know, it's not necessarily as clean as you release it out to your broad user base and you see you know, what percentage of users use it. For us, it was a lot of, you know, beta testing in certain companies that we knew would adopt quickly and then moving from there and letting those, like, more laggard type companies um, adopt it at maybe a different pace. That's great. How do you, um, question for the panel here, how do you successfully go to market with a product and um, not fail hard right away. Um, meaning like with, with KRs, right? Like how do you guys set up those KRs so that that launch can be successful if you hit those KRs? Because a lot of um, some of the um, products that I've seen fail have focused on one type of KR. Meaning like a, hey, we're going to sell X amount, right? And, and not necessarily another type of KR that I'll speak to after I get your thoughts on um, that question. Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot in there. Um, I think that, first of all, if you hit your metric a week after you 
launch a product, you're not aiming high enough, for sure. Um, I think that there's a lot of uh, really great things about launching an MVP, but that should never be the last time that you touch something. Um, I think that that's something that is one of the hardest parts of product, is always coming back, making sure that you're you know, checking those, those success metrics that you set up originally. Um, right from the very beginning, though, I think one thing that's really important and very underrated is I always talk to the engineer who understands the data the most. I will sit down and they will walk me through like line by line of the code of how we actually pull or SQL or whatever, how we actually pull that data to understand not only where it came from, but then how it can be molded and used to actually read out the results. Um, and a lot of times those engineers have great ideas for those success metrics, right? They might be thinking of something that you hadn't thought of um, or they so have like some... To define the, which ones to pick for the product? or the uh, Sometimes. Or, it's yeah. usually I would have those success metrics in mind that very much kind of funnel up through yeah. through the, the strategy of the product. Um, but they might, you know, you might be thinking of it as a percentage of people who click this button mm -hmm. and maybe they see it as, uh, you know, number of specific user actions uh, slightly downstream because then you can confirm that this person, like, took this specific action or what have you. Um, so I like to do, do that a lot. But a lot of it when it comes to launching a su successful MVP is I like to have a like, here is my absolute like pie in the sky goal metric that I want to hit eventually. Um, and then as you kind of like have different iterations, you can have different metrics that all kind of bubble up to that, that final metric. Um, I think there's also a lot of value in knowing when to kill an MVP and knowing when to take something out of your product. Um, I know a lot of people, and I am totally guilty of this, that you know, you're know you super set on something and, and you've done a lot of work and a lot of discovery and um, you think it's the best thing ever and you know, you've know you seen it kind of start to, to hit these metrics, but maybe you start to look at something different as you iterate, you're looking at a different different uh, set of data or diff different metric and you realize, oh, you know, that first metric was really just a vanity metric. That's not something that we should be focusing on. Um, maybe it's time to, to take it out of the products. And I think that that can be just as valuable um, yeah. when, you're, when you're releasing something new. So for the panel's um, experience so far um, in, in product, what has been like the types or themes of key results that you, or, or KPIs that you track um, after you've released several products and you kind of know what metrics to look at? Is there like a specific type that you kind of set yourself up for success? with this product that you want to measure so you don't run into those things um, later down the road? I have three. Um, one is adoption-based. Is someone actually using it? Um, and that, to me, communicates an interest and in that there's some sort of problem there. We've, we've kind of hit the head, nail on the head in terms of there's a problem there that needs solving and that users are interested in seeing what kind of solution we've come up with. And what does that kind of take the form of? Um, Let's say, let's take an example. Um, so recently Ibotta, we've worked on the ability to let you link your Walmart account if you have one to Ibotta. Um, we look at the number of people who are linking their Walmart accounts, straight up. Um, how many people are choosing to use that method of redeeming offers through Ibotta at Walmart via their Walmart account, that integration, or by taking a picture of their receipt. So that's, um, that's, a, that's a great like quantity KPI, yeah, right? Like, totally. Something that you should always have in a product is something that is quantity focused, right? Are they using it? Yeah. yeah. Something along those right. lines. So are yeah. they using it in your case here is linking the loyalty card, right? But what happens if they link the loyalty card and they never open the app again? Good point. Yeah. Um, so we're also looking at the number of transactions that come through the integration as well. So it's, in this particular feature example, there are two steps, right? Like you can link your account and never use it. 
we haven't really we haven't really done a good job. So just relying on the actual account links isn't a very good implementation of a success metric because it doesn't tell the whole story. Um, going back to that idea of the core value flow um, for Ibotta of people redeeming those offers, are they actually redeeming offers via the integration or are they linking their account and then just uploading their receipts at the same time? Because that would tell me that, oh yeah, there's an interest in a different way to redeem offers at Ibotta outside of uploading receipts, but maybe linking the Walmart account hasn't quite been it for that group of users. So putting you more on the spot here. Yeah. <laughs> Say they link their loyalty card yeah. and now they're making purchases. There. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what if those purchases just get moved from receipt to link loyalty? Yeah. Um, That's an, yeah. Like, is that uh, would you count that as a success for your product? I would. I wouldn't say it's a success or a failure. I would say I need more information, and I would want to look at things like retention. Are they redeeming more offers per trip? Um, are are they redeeming a greater variety of offers, right? Are there different methods of consumption or different measures of consumption that I can look at to basically answer that question? Like, is this providing a better experience? Not just the same experience, right? Are they redeeming the same number of offers if that's what we care about? Um, are they redeeming more? Are they staying around with the app more often? Are they trying other products within the app? Um, are they consuming ad products? Are they going and actually trying mobile commerce? So are they moving away from grocery rewards into something like online rewards where they go to Hertz.com and rent a car through Ibotta? Like is, are there other signals that tell me that we have gotten more engagement out of that user with our product? I think another thing that often gets lost in feature focus work is the downstream impacts to your customer care organization and is your feature that you've created, does, do users understand it? Is it working as you expected? And a way you can measure that is volume of care requests around said feature. So at ADT we had a home automation platform and we initially were a very closed off ecosystem where it was just ADT supported devices and as part of our transition into opening up our platform, we worked with companies like Nest or Ring Video Doorbell to integrate their products into our mobile experience. And one of the key things that we measured was time in our application. So by putting the Nest thermostat within ADT Pulse, did that increase people's usage of the Pulse app and take them out of Nest? But one of the things that I think when we launched that, we're like, this is great, people are using Pulse more, that means they're not in Nest, this is really good, engagement in our app is up. But the downstream impacts to our customer care organization were horrendous. They were like, we don't know how to enter. I mean, once, the, once they got their Nest connected, things were great. But the actual connection flow was really challenging for our users and we missed a lot of pieces of that user experience that negatively impacted a lot of other teams' metrics. So I think if you can look holistically of the features that you're building and not just the impacts to time in the app or increased funded redemptions, like this new integration and in Walmart Pay might be really confusing to our users. So thinking about how your feature not just impacts usage of the application, but the other teams that also support the app is really key. And I think it gets lost often. I think that's a really important point. And there's a distinction between launching a new product for the first time into the market and then launching a product within a suite of products, um, kind of like at Ibotta right now where we're working through this. Um, and I think I've heard this concept described as a backstop key result. So if you are launching a new product, so like to go back to the Walmart example of linked accounts or number of transactions that come through via the Walmart account, what is a key result that you can articulate that also makes sure you're not hurting other teams or hurting other products? So maybe that's like, okay, we get people to link their accounts, but 
are we still making sure that the number of offers that our users are redeeming is still at the same level or higher, right? Because if we get people to link accounts, then all of a sudden the number of offers that people redeem drops off a cliff. That's not good. Ultimately, yeah, my feature is doing well, but the business is hurting. So how do you make sure that you still acknowledge kind of the, the broader board, as it were, and not just stay focused on your own feature? I think it's really important. So I'm, I'm sensing some themes and some patterns here, okay? So the two that I, I'm looking at here is you want a quality um, KR. Like that's something that you want. But it, just having quality alone won't get you quantity. So you want a quantity KR as well. But just having quantity alone, you know, you could suffer quality. So having those two KRs, being thoughtful of how you guys measure your product launch and having those two themes around those KRs um, could be uh, critical to a successful product launch. Because if you are one way or the other, you might still just be narrow focused on um, how that product will perform. Um, <clears throat> another thing I'd like to plug here is um, there's a book that um, we've spread throughout there, our organization called Measuring What Matters, and that's a book by John Doerr talking about the objective and key results framework. Um, we will, I'll try to um, aggregate all of the resources that we talked about today and put them in the liner notes of this episode so you guys can go and um, access some of those things. But uh, Highly recommend that book um, if you guys are curious more about the OKR framework and the how to create effective OKRs. Um, but yeah, so uh, I'd be remiss to not mention when when you're creating any metric, uh, we've a couple folks have mentioned vanity metrics. Uh, so a vanity metric, for example, would be if Twitter was measuring how many tweets are sent on their platform, like. Even if they had one user and the company was bombing, like that number is still going to increase because tweets are still being sent. So that's a vanity metric because it's not really telling you much, but it's cool to put up on a wall and it's like exciting, right? <laughs> um, you, what you're really looking for when you create these metrics is there's a concept called like a smart metric. Folks have heard of that, I hope, right? So. I just it's think it's important acronym. that, like, regardless of what the what it's about, yeah, it's a five-letter acronym. Um, you need to make sure that your KPIs that you're setting, your KRs that you're setting, are um, you know specific and measurable and actionable, and um, that they're they're timely. And so there's just like you know you you really want to be thoughtful about within this metric that you're setting. Is it clear that you know if you did measure you know the percentage change on something in a period of time? is that going to actually be something you can take action on? Um, and so getting good at writing a KR, regardless of what it's about, I think is a, is a talent all in of itself yeah. and a muscle that you just have to work. And you'll learn when you create bad ones. Because you'll get to yeah. the end of your quarter, you have it, and you sort of go like, Ooh, I don't know if I can really take action on that in the way I thought I could. Well, that's a, that's a story of product management, right? Learning from your failures and iterating and getting better, right? So I think another way to practice this, those who aren't in product or aspiring PMs, just create that for yourself, right? Like, what is your objective for your career? What are the key results um, to help you achieve that? And see how that, you know, test it out, see how it goes. I think the other way that I look at the S in SMART is segmented. Um, so in the uh, healthcare space, there's a ton of different segments, and I think it's really easy to assign a specific metric and say, if we hit this, we are successful. Um, so a really good example of that would be clinical efficiency, how quickly we can have an encounter between a patient and a doctor. For some segments, they want it as fast as possible, right? It's a teacher who's on their lunch break. They need a prescription. They want it fast. They only want to talk to the doctor for like five minutes. We see that happen all the time. But then there are some other groups where 
you know, with we with our elderly population, we actually have a pretty pretty high usage rate for for people over 65, and uh, they want to have a longer conversation often because it builds more trust because they're you know they're used to the brick and mortar where it's going to take an hour and 45 minutes to talk to their doctor, um, and and so you know you could me measure clinical efficiency or how quickly these encounters are happening, but that can also kind of be a vanity metric if you're not looking at the right thing. Um, so you have to make sure that the, the metrics that you're measuring are not symptoms of other metrics that are incorrect, if that makes sense. Um, so really, if we look at patient satisfaction, there's a really interesting trend where it's not a, you know, X equals Y line between how quickly you have an encounter and patient satisfaction. Um, it's kind of all over the place and it's segmented not just by age, but all sorts of different uh, kind of demographic information. Yeah. I have a question. Go ahead. If you don't mind, moderator. <laughs> That's fine. How do you know if your metric is a vanity metric? Like how, do you, how do you get out of that trap? I usually like to talk to really smart people who are good at poking holes in everything, and they will do it immediately. And I actually love that, like, not harsh feedback, but like good critical feedback is really important. Um, and I have a list of people that if I'm, you know, going down a certain path, I know they're going to tell me that's a really dumb idea, or you're just doing that because you know it's going to make this exec like think you're smart. Um, and I think humans really have a tendency when we see graphs and figures, we're like, oh, that person's intelligent. But my favorite people are, you know, I worked for a, a CEO previously and. We were always terrified to show him PowerPoints or whatever because he would not look at the beautiful graph that took us six months to make. He would look at the one number and be like, why do we care about that? I don't care about that. Do you care about that? So that's how I like to approach it often. I think the only, a easy rule of thumb is if you do nothing, is that number consistently changing all the time anyways? Yeah, no, that's not going to, you know, because a true vanity metric is, is going to increase no matter what over time. Um, I, I think a, a poorly considered metric might just have other issues, um, in which case I think, yeah, find, find people in your organization who are natural skeptics um, and data people, and they, will, they, ha they have that muscle and they can work that really easily. And otherwise, I think it's just you, you learn as you identify metrics that aren't and that, that are really aren't telling you whether your features are successful. Yeah. Yeah, I think don't develop these in a silo, right? Like definitely share them out, collaborate with your team. Um, having those discussions with the team is so critical because all of these topics come up, right? Oh, what about this? Or is that a vanity metric? Like that definitely comes up in those conversations. Um, so definitely schedule. I think it, it, they take a while. I think these are kind of like hour-long conversations that you have with the team that's probably peppered within um, the um, quarter itself, but um, that, that, that could be a good way to surface that. So we talked a lot about um, OKRs and key results for companies and our products. How do we measure success at, with our careers, with um, being product managers? Have you guys tested OKRs out yourself? Like I know Allegra just mentioned she did. Um, are there other kind of uh, ways that we measure success in our own career that uh, we can share with the audience? Uh, thinking through this, for me, I have always been a product manager on consumer-facing features within the mobile app or products that I've worked on. And something I'm striving for in 2020 and beyond is to ha like increase my technical acumen so I can be in platform discussions with the engineering team and be like, okay, do we need that canonical proto or do we not? Because right now, I cannot do that given my background. So I am 
trying, I found a mentor within my team on the engineering side, and I'm starting by downloading GraphQL so I can start accepting platform stories and testing out API responses. So for me, it's going to be incremental progress, but starting with by the end of Q1, am I accepting stories that my team is API responses through GraphQL is a pretty tactical, actionable um, goal for myself, and the outcome of that down the line is to be able to then challenge technical um, estimates and things like that in team team meetings. So for me, that is a way I'm measuring my progress to those goals. Yeah, that's great. Anyone else like to share? I, I had more of an anecdote. <clears throat> uh, someone once said, I think it was my old CEO, he said, uh, you should always have a mentor that is, you know, five or ten years ahead of you in your career, and then you should always have someone that you're mentoring that was, um, you know, prior to you in your career. And so, for me, teaching is a big part of how I uh, stay sharp, because when you get asked a lot of questions that are, you know, basic by nature, it really does bring you back to the foundational stuff to be like, wait, you know, it's not necessarily something I practice every day, but it really keeps me sharp. Um, but I, I think, for me, my, uh, you know, transitioning through uh, a pretty hectic startup and now getting into, you know, kind of making my own schedule and choosing the clients I'm working with, for me, a lot of the success has been, can I bring my best thinking to the table? Um, I think product management is notorious for being the, the career of burnout. Um, <clears throat> you're asked to do a lot of different things. It's very high paced. It can be a lot of context switching. And I think to a certain extent, not well managed, that can be something that leads to um, some really challenging uh, personal burnout issues, which I can speak to if anyone wants to chat about it. Um, but I think like to be a good product manager, you have to be able to be stable, to be um, thoughtful, um, and to be able to transition through all of the, the chaos that, that is needed of you in order to be effective. So I think it's always, for me, more of a, an internal check-in to say, am I bringing my best self? Am I making good decisions? And do I have that energy required to navigate that? Um, and when I don't, making it a point to adjust it because it's not, it won't be effective for the teams I'm working on if I don't. It's like secure your air mask first before assisting others is like my go-to phrase. How, how regular are your check-ins? With myself? Yeah. Weekly. Weekly. Oh, no. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, for me, it's, uh, you know, some of the things that I'm checking in is just general feel. Like I'm yeah. a big, like, how, what's my gut tell me? Uh, you know, are these clients a good fit? Um, are the environments I'm working in good? Am I bringing my best self? You know, what, and so I, I do a lot of journaling, um, and that I think surfaces a lot of it. Um, but also getting outside your bubble. So I think, you know, one-on-ones with team members and, and asking for feedback directly. Because for me, there I, there are certain things that um, come to light when I'm not my best <laughs> self. And so, you know, I'm a big fan of just getting ahead of that by asking people what that. Um, what their interactions with me have been like, what's been effective, what hasn't, and it, you know, a lot of those themes I've just learned to, to identify and then quickly address. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, so we're gonna wrap up this panel section and we're coming up to our time here. We're gonna um, open it up for an audience Q&A here in a minute, but before we do that, we got a couple minutes left and I would like to um, assign some homework for you guys. That's kind of what we do with the podcast, like just challenge our listeners to kind of go and do something. Um, in relation to what we've talked about today. So um, with that, does anyone have some homework to assign to our listeners? Sure, why not? I'm a teacher. I can think of some stuff. <laughs> um, I would say two things. One, can you go and look at your product and identify what is that core value flow that everything else is built around? Um, 
there will be that one thing that you want your customers to do, and then all of these other things that are designed to make that one flow a lot easier for them to do. Um, so that's the first thing. And then the second thing is look at your dashboards. What metrics are you tracking today? And try and figure out which ones are vanity metrics. Which ones do you just not care about? Or which ones, like to the Twitter example, like there really isn't anyone else that helps people tweet. So capturing the number of tweets doesn't help you understand if like you are capturing market share because you have 100% of the tweets. Um, so what are, what are, do you have any vanity metrics and can you get rid of those? Yeah, I think um, in addition to that, the, think about quality versus quantity when you are uh, assigning KRs to your um, squad or your product, right? Uh, make sure that you don't have one, just one, without the other. Um, so I would challenge if you do have those already set up, um, if you don't, one, develop those. Um, learn about OKRs a little bit more. You can read those resources and come up with those either personally or for your product or team. And then two, think about the quality and the quantity uh, care results for that. I wanted to highlight something that you said that I think would be a good exercise, which is come up with a pocket phrase for when those conversations are heading down a how path. So I'm a big fan of pocket phrases because in the moment when things are hectic and your CEO is like questioning you and drilling you and a bunch of questions of why you're trying to build something, um, you know, come up with whatever your pocket phrase is to get really to the root of the why. Mm -hmm. um, because I think part of being a good product manager is really developing the right way to challenge people in effective ways. And so sometimes that's just as simple as, you know, making it a point that in every meeting when someone's making a suggestion for a solution, you know, what can you say that can kind of gear the conversation? Because every interaction that you have with people is teaching them how you will work together over time. Um, and so, yeah, developing how you'll navigate those conversations to always get it back to the what and the why and away from the how might be a good practice and kind of test what works, adjust over time and see if it's effective. Sounds great. Anyone else have any thoughts before we jump into questions? All right. So we roughly have nine, eight minutes for um, questions, so we'll, we'll run a mic. Um, if anyone has the first question, go ahead. Can... Thanks, Jess. <laughs> Uh, Jake, at one point you mentioned um, that you have three metrics that you fall back on as kind of the, the, the basic metrics for any product. You said consumption, and then I, we got, a, or adoption, I'm sorry, and you got a little sidetracked. So I'm curious. I might have interrupted him at that point, but yeah. <laughs> we, did, yeah <laughs> we got through one, didn't we? Uh, yes, consumption is one. I think something revenue related is two. So if that's driving revenue, if that's decreasing OPEX, something that you can fall back on that articulates business value. And then the third one is that backstop KR that Bergen was talking about. Um, is there a way that you can manage the broader impact on the rest of the business? Are you hurting consumption of other features? Are you driving up um, care, customer care ticket volumes, right? Like you may, be, you may be creating this new thing, but you may be creating a lot of headaches elsewhere and on the aggregate, it's not a good thing for the business. So just making sure you're covering that base. Any other questions? Kevin, you said you brought up a couple times quantitative versus qualitative KRs. What's, can you give me an example of how it can sort of grasp how you measure qualitative? Yeah. Um, yes. Um, another uh, way to do that is surveys. So 
Things like CSAT, customer satisfaction surveys, is a good way to do that. That's one that I do internally. Uh, NPS is another one, net promoter score. Um, and that, that's yep, yep, NPS is a good one. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think, or, or it, not just qualitative data, but like quality in general, I think is important. So thinking of launching a product and striving for number of users doesn't necessarily define a successful product without some sort of quality metric. Number of users that do this thing, right? Netflix does this really cool thing where their hypotheses, they always set their hypotheses first, um, and that's just straight data that they take from their product all over the place. I can't even imagine how much data they have. It would be so much fun to play with that data. But, um, and then the second piece that they do is they do a lot of A-B user testing um, that is very qualitative. So instead of walking someone through and asking them to score something, um, it's really just assumption busting. So it allows them to iterate really, really quickly because they'll have a new feature that comes out. A great example of this is when they allow downloads Right? That's something that they wanted to iterate on really, really quickly um, because it has so much impact and it was actually something that they needed to do to, to kind of push themselves away from Hulu. Um, and so that's a really good example of just storytelling where it's, yes, we have this metric, but to figure out if it's the right metric, like you might not want to use more metrics to figure out if a metric is the right metric. Um, uh, and a lot of times, you know, if you're trying to iterate quickly, you might not have the sample size to make something statistically significant if you're using data to try and prove whether or not you're on the right track right away. Um, so they have some really interesting studies out there. Cool. Right, some over here, if you can, thank you. Um, thank you so much for the panel so far. It's been super insightful. I guess one question I have is when you think about success metrics, um, what are some of the challenges that you run into either planning those success metrics or achieving the success that you're looking for um, throughout the process of planning? I think one of the things that I've fallen into pretty recently is the, I think Jess mentioned the binary kind of metric. Um, Again, we're very solution-oriented as humans, and you know, to get out of that mindset is sometimes hard, especially when you um, have a strong vision in mind and you're excited about what you guys want to go build and continuing to ask the why and get out of that binary um, way. But any metric that you have that's like all or nothing is probably not the best metric to measure. But any other? Moving the finish line is probably a big one. Um, I, I like your point. If you hit your KR really easily, you probably under. But I, I think that there's like a rationalization that can happen of, well, and this maybe applies to B2B, but this like, well, we still think it's the right thing to do. Like the problem is actually in how we sell it and demo it, or we're not training on it effectively or, you know, so I think, um, maybe less to the planning, but more on the succeeding of like, as you're seeing, you know, the time pass and you're. Uh, allowing customer usage and you're, and you're seeing how it's going, um, not allowing yourself to remain objective. And, you know, sometimes that means, oh, it's not tracking like we thought we thought it would, so we're going to adjust it. And it, to me, it's the equivalent of like changing your pointing and your backlog after you've pointed, like you're not going to learn if you change your pointing. So yeah, really, you know, sticking, you, hopefully you put the thought into the metrics and, and you have the hard conversation about we didn't hit it. Do we understand why we didn't hit it? It might have been the wrong metric, but it also might be that we really made some poor assumptions and we really need to go back to the drawing board. I think the other thing that I would add is with a success metric, if you find that you have to change your success metric over the course of the quarter, 
you may not have had the best conversation at the outset just yet. Um, I think very often, and this should happen, in that you should be changing how you're getting somewhere, but how you're measuring success to that place, like the destination shouldn't change in theory. Um, and then how you're measuring your progress to that destination also shouldn't change. But how, like what initiatives, what things you build to get there should be definitely changing all the time. If you're testing all the time, you'll be finding out different things, you'll be getting new information, the market will be changing. But I think a good mark of a good, a mark of a good success metric is that it is able to remain constant even in um, this world of change, constant change within the business. So if you're looking back on a metric three months from now at the end of the quarter, like, yeah, were we able to hold on to that metric for the whole time? Yes, great. That was probably a good metric for us to have. Yeah. And keep in mind, like, the first time that you guys do this is, is, is probably not going to work out. <laughs> it, it takes a couple of times to get it right. So be persistent with it and just know that everyone that is trying OKRs out or measuring key results, um, it, it just gets better over time. Um, you'll refine that. I think something too that's really, really important is when you're thinking about when is a feature successful, sometimes you will have crazy successes where it might not be that you hit that KR really, really quickly, but once you get there, you're like, wow, I feel great about that feature. Um, what's beautiful about Agile and being able to not commit to a 12-month roadmap is then maybe you can say, this worked really, really well. We should continue down this path. Um, I think something that's really important is if you set a success metric and you hit it and it's going well, I don't like to just say, okay, well, let's, let's make it even better, like that specific metric. Let's try to move the needle even more. Mm -hmm. That's a really great time to kind of stop and reevaluate what it is that you're actually measuring yeah. because maybe you fixed this one problem or you, you were able to make an experience better from one specific perspective, um, but there are a lot of other problems out there that this really great feature that you created that was able to be proven successful can actually help solve other problems and uh, uh, improve other metrics as well. Right behind you. Um, my question is kind of general because um, I've heard your career path and then you kind of uh, come into product manager from all different tracks. So um, as someone starting the career or mid-career or even advancing the career, what would you say like uh, the tools that is most important for product managers? I heard one of you say that you want to increase your technical acumen mm -hmm. or I don't know, like, um, do you think uh, over time, how do you improve yourself? How do you know you're a good product manager and how do you improve yourself? Thank you. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it, it's so different and it's, it's not a great answer, but the biggest thing I would say is, is passion. If you have passion, you're going to be a product manager, a good product manager someday. Um, if you're not already in that profession, um, and, and persistence, right? So being passionate and persistence are like the key things that I look in for interviews when I interview a product manager. Outside of just, there's general skills that you can learn. There's so many books out there. There's so many good resources to learn. Again, you could lean more technical. That's, a, that's an approach. You can be more uh, customer facing. That's another approach. Um, but in general, if you have passion for it, you're going to figure it out. And I think that's all of us. We've kind of been able to get into product because of those things. The thing that and I would you're add here, is, which is great. This is one one step. <laughs> yeah, um, is can you facilitate a group conversation well? I think what you'll find as a PM a lot of times is you need to bring a lot of people together who all have different ideas about what needs to be done, and somehow you need to get everyone to agree on something. 
oftentimes you want them to agree on the thing that you want, which is another skill in itself, but can you lead a conversation to the point where you are getting the best ideas out of everybody in the room and you can get everyone to leave the room bought into the ultimate decision that came out of that conversation? One thing that I would really suggest for product managers, and it actually changed the way that I work uh, pretty significantly, um, is somebody suggested that I start doing decision journaling. Um, so there's a lot around the science of decision making, um, and it's it takes a lot of time, and I would not uh, suggest doing it in Q4 around roadmap time because it does take a lot of time, but um, for a week uh, I journaled every time I made a decision. It literally was like, do I use paper towels or do I use the hair dryer after I'm done? Like, it, it was to that level um, and it's really around like, what are the emotions that are making you make those decisions? Uh, what information or assumptions do you have an, uh, around those decisions? Um, a lot of them were were obviously very product specific and I think what what I like to focus around like am I doing my job well is how do I feel about the decisions that I'm making. Um, the decisions that I feel best about are ones backed by data um, where I feel like the right stakeholders are in the room um, that I feel like I can excite people about um, because a lot of what, what product managers are supposed to do is, is really get people excited about what we're working on um, and that was really, really helpful for me because it made me stop and think you know there are plenty of times throughout the day uh, it's a classic product thing where you're stressed out or something's not going the way that you want it to and you totally make a decision based off of emotion um, and sometimes that's okay when we're talking about user empathy you know that's an okay thing but um, it really helped me to kind of pause and and think through all of that um, and that's how I measure a lot of my kind of career success um, because in product a lot of what you do is make decisions so. yeah. yeah I think the also the um, just practice as much as you can even if you're not in a product role today um, do those things. I think that's all how we kind of got into product anyway. Like we built business cases and to invest in this thing to put us in those positions to be the product manager, that um, person. So, Yeah, and I was just going to add, I don't know what your background is, but I think uh, people, people often overlook the experience that they have from, you know, you have some sort of career experience prior to this, right? Um, whether that's domain experience and industry experience that you can bring to the table um, or stakeholder management that maybe was, you know, utilized in a different way throughout your career earlier. But I think um, what's interesting about product management is it really is a generalist role. And so connecting the dots of, you know, what have I been doing that can really translate well into this context? Um, yeah, I think you, it's easy to overlook where that can map and, and also help you be maybe more appealing to an organization. But I do think to your point, like I, of, I often tell people, don't focus on getting the product management role, focus on getting the role in the company that will eventually need product managers. Um, and you know, you, from a lot of folks here and, and a lot of students that I've had, you know, some of the most successful people have been in positions where they can take advantage of the role they have in an organization. And product managers are busy, so we'll always take help. So if you can bring some skills to the table um, and make yourself, you know, put yourself in a good position so that when that team grows, you're a natural fit. Um, as a hiring manager, that has been really useful to me in the past to be able to identify people in the organization who know the product, know the customers, and maybe they haven't worked in a backlog specifically, but like you can teach someone that. Yeah. It's much harder to teach someone your business, um, the domain, and, and how to work well with the stakeholders in the organization. Great. Well, we're going to wrap up. Um, sorry. Um, we're going to hang out a little bit. Um, if you guys want to come up and um, introduce yourselves as well. A um, couple plugs. Um, join our classes at General Assembly. Um, 
Jess and I will, will be teaching there next year. So if you're curious to find out more about that, come talk to us after that. Listen to the podcast. Subscribe on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen. We're on Spotify and all that. Um, share it out if you found it interesting today. And, um, yeah, and check out Colorado Product as well. Um, if you, I think it's coloradoproduct.com. Is that a good one? Cool. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. Okay. All right.